Welcome to episode five of The Strange Quark. Today we're in the West and hence the swish, posh, kind of jazzy music in the background. And we've got with us, and we'll get everybody to briefly introduce yourselves if you want to, or can I call everyone a neuroscientist across the board? <laughs> I guess that's fair enough. <laughs> so we've got Dr. Hmm. Kevin Mitchell from um, Trinity College Dublin, and he's a neuroscientist. Uh, we've got Dr. Richard Roach from Minute University. He's a neuroscientist. And we've got Dr. Dave Delaney from Waterford, the Waterford Institute of Technology. And he's a cognitive neuroscientist. <laughs> so he's special. <laughs> and today we're going to be talking about the brain, which you probably have gathered from the whole neuroscience thing. Um, we're going to talk about our favourite and least favourite movies in terms of how they portray the brain and neuroscience research. And... I think the first question that I want to ask everybody is, what's your most hated movie, your most hated sci-fi movie that basically is telling lies or it's full of pseudoscience? Can I jump in with something that's really bad and see what you think? Um, so, in has everybody seen Lucy with uh -huh. Scarlett yeah. Johansson? I haven't seen it, but I know it. <laughs> <laughs> no variety. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think the tagline was we only something along the lines of we only use 10% of our brain. Yes. Yeah. Is this true? <laughs> Start debunking now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Lucy had, is, you know, as a movie has has two things going for it: Scarlett Johansson, <laughs> and that's it. It is one of the most ludicrous uh, things. I mean, the the idea that you could be come more intelligent than you are now is not that outrageous. Uh, but she know. starts, you know, just just sort of, you know, disobeying the laws of physics somehow, and, yeah. you know, no amount of intelligence is going to let you stop time, and, and you know... Where it, did it, that it come from, then? Sure. Like, how did they leap from enhancing cognitive function to manipulating methods, matter? Yeah. yeah, It's just Luc Besson, you know, uh, unhinged, basically. Yeah. But is there any, like, is there any kind of <clears throat> science fiction narratives that, like, he's worked on? Like, did he just come up with this? Well, or is... Sort of like an element of supernaturalism. Yeah. Like psi abilities. Right. He did the fifth uh, element, didn't he? Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. the same sort of the, did, yeah. you know, way out sensibility. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Um, That's a whole decent film. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. But that had great visuals. Lucy didn't even have good visuals. Uh, like, it, it had a style. <laughs> it was weird and uh, demented. Uh, and obviously the this premise that we only use 10% of our brains is yeah. absurd. Uh, because, yeah. you know, the... Your, your brains are wasteful. They, 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 they require huge amounts of energy. Yeah. If we weren't using them, we wouldn't have them. So the yeah. other aspect of that, which um, undermines the whole premise, is that um, experts actually use less metabolic resources in the brain than novices. Novices tend to have inefficient algorithms like mm -hmm. when they try and solve problems, and so they tend to be, um, they, they recruit more areas, so more areas light up in MRI machines. Um, the more expert you become, the more streamlined, more efficient, the better model of the problem that your brain has. And it's, um, is the efficient brain use. using less brain power? Yeah, that, that's exactly it. Like it's, it's reconfigured oh. itself, so its hardware is different. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, like, it, it can power through um, <laughs> problems more efficiently. Yeah. It's leaner. So, yeah, it's it's a, yeah. But I think and one of the things that really riled people up about Lucy was, as I said, the, the tagline, <laughs> right, yeah. was we only use 10% of our brain or something. Can't wait to use 100. And that was on the side of buses. Yeah. It was oh, yeah. everywhere. Yeah. It's yeah. Myth, which, um, yeah. You're it's like, the 10% the myth. Decades trying to... Uh, yeah. Yeah. I thought that it had been resolved and Lucy yeah. just bursts yeah. back with this, like, <laughs> let's destroy science. Yeah. I mean, I have this conversation regularly with yeah. taxi drivers. When I say I'm a neuroscientist, they go, is that true, but they only use 10% of our brains? Because yeah. I saw someone who could do something 
you know. Sorry, taxi drivers. <laughs> <laughs> and to make it worse, you'll never had, listen to the podcast anyway. But the the scientist was you had more ninety percent. But you had Morgan Freeman in in the movie, uh, yeah, advocating this, who has done lots of good science shows as the presenter. So it oh, just he? confounded the thing. He's presented various kind of yes, reputable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he's basically going, "Hi, like I'm Doctor Science Face, and, yeah. and here's, here's a myth." Yeah. He, played, he played God as well. So it was <laughs> oh, literally yeah. the voice from above. But, uh, I mean, it's funny yeah. if you look in 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 evolutionary terms at um, at animals, for example, that have lost a sense, like moles, for example, they don't see anymore, or other things like that. What do you see in their brain? Is that that area of their brain basically gets what well, you know? It's no longer visual <coughs> cortex because it's not doing that job anymore. So it's expensive to have it. So mm. if you don't use it, you literally lose it, and it's not just a. Uh, a hypothetical you can see it having happened in evolution over and over and over again so yeah. and you know in us are just just what we're using to see is probably 20 percent of our brain <laughs> i would say yeah. you know so so it's yeah, clearly um clearly silly yeah. what about the fact that you've got a certain amount of um skills knowledge brain power at say the age of 50 is it possible to do is it too late can you teach an old dog new tricks because i think a lot of people might watch lucy going maybe there's something special like the weird soda crystals whatever they were that they look like that leaked into her that might somehow at my late age unlock some powers because people want to believe that it's never too late to reach their cognitive or intellectual potential so what can you do if you find the yourself lazy at 50. <laughs> well, the, the fundamental characteristic, the defining characteristic of the brain is its, it's capacity for, for neuroplasticity to change in response to um, experience. So the brain is, is it's almost a metaphor. You can imagine like it's a, like a river. There's co constant flow of energy and matter going through the brain. And if your environment changes, if your environment becomes more complex, the brain essentially adapts itself to create an internal model of that, to an internal model of that environment. So the brain itself becomes heavier, the connections become denser, and it becomes more efficient at modeling more complex environments. And that can occur, that occurs at all ages. Conversely, if your environment becomes more um, simplified, less, um, less demanding, less um, interesting, like an old folk song, your mm -hmm. standard old folk song, yeah. The brain doesn't have to maintain the level of complexity it had for the for a more, more complex environment. So your brain literally turns to mush? Well, it starts eating itself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, literally. Yeah, what? literally does. Um, yeah, yeah, because it's atrophy. But again, those things are excess. Um, they cost excess to energy yeah. to run, and, and you will lose them. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's true. Clearly, we can keep learning things and, and keep a brain active. And I think one of the main sort of things there that is just good advice is keep exercising, actually, yeah, that, yeah. that yeah. keeps keeps the brain highly plastic but but I mean that said it is true that that young brains are more plastic mm. and there are critical periods for for some kinds of plasticity you know beyond which you you can't sort of uh, keep learning so for example if, if your visual system has to wire up in a way that you have you know depth perception for example that mm -hmm. requires experience when you're young if you don't get that experience say because you're you know some people are born with cataracts mm. congenital cataracts if they're not corrected by the age of two even if they're corrected later and the person gets vision, it'll never be fully normal vision because that critical period for their brain to wire up has been missed. So 
Okay. It's true the brain is plastic yeah. throughout life, mm. but it's also true that it's more but plastic early on. Yeah. But th this is also where um, mm. smart drugs potentially, nootropics can potentially play a role. Exactly. And by opening up yes. these, these windows of neuroplasticity. Exactly, so there's a recent study looking at um, the ability to... Um, okay, first of all, so what you're saying is, because some people listening might not know this, but smart drugs do j exist, they're just not crazy Lucy level things. There are smart drugs, or is this potential... It's a strange, it's a strange <laughs> war. Like uh, to say a drug makes you smarter is a bit vague. You know, you can there say there are drugs that, that well, there are drugs that increase attention. Yeah. There are drugs that you know that that increase memory. Mm. And there are drugs that increase arousal or wakefulness. Is there a three uh, and in so one? So on. So <laughs> we could probably whip up a cocktail. Yeah. For <laughs> <it>. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, we put in a little bit of Ritalin, a little bit of modafinil, and, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> let's see what else we got. Yes, yeah, some coke. Take care of the recipe, folks. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be great. Um, but yeah, this, this, so, this, this yeah, idea right. of reopening this, um, this, pla this cri these critical periods where the brain becomes super plastic again. Uh, so a recent study looked at um, perfect pitch and training perfect pitch in adults, and it's, it's usually it's, it's pr practically impossible for adults to uh, train themselves to um, to attain perfect pitch. But in this study, they gave them. Uh, yeah, these um, adults had drug Valproate, put them through a training um, uh, protocol, and the majority of them were actually able to essentially uh, attain perfect pitch. Hmm. So you're essentially... Um, what was the drug they used? Valproate. Okay. Uh, Valproic acid. Um, which Where can you get that? Yeah. <laughs> Is it available in Tesco? It's an Other supermarkets? It's an anti-epileptic <laughs> yeah, drug. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, there are options like, uh, like for, for um, enhancing that this, this, this yeah. fundamental ca capacity for neuroplasticity. Actually, there was another uh, study using fluoxetine, which is uh, Prozac, yeah. which showed that in the visual system, again, you can, in, in early, this is in, in animals, if you close one eye, then the other eye kind of takes over the territory. So there's mm. some plasticity in early animals. If you do that in, in older ones, it, that doesn't happen. But if you give them the Prozac and then do that, close their eye briefly, then that plasticity happens again. So mm -hmm. there's some molecular process that happens that's different between young animals and old animals. And there's a rationale for that. You know, when you're young, you, the, the goal of the brain is to learn from experience, but then at some stage you want to lock that in. You know, mm -hmm. you, you, want to, you don't want to keep everything being plastic. You want to have that there to, to learn from experience. Yeah. Um, and so that plasticity is actively shut down. There are processes that actively do that. And so if we learn more about them, it's possible that we'll be able to reopen those things. And, you know, imagine for rehabilitation, for stroke, yeah, yeah, yeah. or for, uh, you know, any kinds of injuries and so on, yeah. where, where dimension yeah. and so on. So it's not even just an, an enhancement, but can be used to, for, for rehabilitation. Because yeah. like prior to the age, I think it's around like 16 months maybe, um, the neuroplasticity is essentially, it's driven by the environment. There's very little gator. So whatever the, the organism is exposed to, the, like the, the implant is exposed to, imprints so the whole the sponge yeah. thing. Exactly, yeah. 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 And it's, uh, it's only also, say, from cortex develops and the attentional control starts to develop, mm. that um, the brain then starts to gate the, what, like, what is going to cause changes and, and, what, what, and what it's going to ignore. Yeah. Um, so it's, um, but being able to manipulate that process will be a, a, an amazing step forward in terms of um, rehabilitation, for example, as you mentioned. But the, the whole concept of plasticity is still only kind of gradually filtering out to the public, I think, because it's, it's been around since what, the 1880s or something as a, as a concept in, in science, but a lot of the public don't really yet get the message that your brain remains plastic 
throughout life. And, Could you and make it? Like sure, I've seen. Sorry, it just seems, <laughs> seems the opposite to me. Actually, <laughs> it's, no, it seems like the neuroplasticity thing has is completely out there in a way that 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 hit the headlines and that people suddenly have have gone way too far. They think they think. Uh, that anything is possible, that any kind of recovery is possible, any kind of you know yeah, learning maybe. is possible. I, I just get the sense from the headlines where there are so many headlines of like X changes your brain, you know, this changes your brain, exercise changes your brain, reading book changes your brain, and it feels like this. If the opposite is true, that's this saying in journalism. If the if the opposite is a better story, <laughs> then this shouldn't be your story. So what would be a story? Unless you want a headline thing and um, blah, the noise, X the noise, Y. Well, yeah. But I mean, it, it would no be an interesting headline to say something doesn't change your brain. That yeah. would be newsworthy. Well, it's because, true. I mean, that's <laughs> because everything changes your yeah, brain. Yeah, being but alive that's, well, that's what I'm saying. That's, why, that's the most why boring story ever. Being alive changes your brain. But that's, that's why I think it sounds like the public, the public is impressed by these stories all the time. That's why they keep keep turning out when, in fact, the job of the brain is to is to change itself. Right? But yeah, but the, does but if if they accept this idea, that shouldn't be news then. That, this particular thing changes That's because brain. everybody secretly thinks their brain is static and can only do mm. a certain level of whatever. Um, these stories are hope, and it only you can only start changing your brain. It only becomes plastic when it becomes news. They're yeah. treating mm. it like it's new technology. Oh, apparently the brain got an upgrade and it's plastic mm. now. That's kind of the way people think about it. They're like, before that, I wasn't allowed to have a plastic brain. Yeah. So yeah, it's I, not treated like... They, they just don't really... I, yeah, I, I think it's not widely known that your brain stays plastic and that every experience yeah. changes the physical structure but I'm, I'm not sure if your average person in the street gets that yet or Maybe. knows that Maybe. I don't know what you think um, well obviously everyone has an intuitive sense of uh, like children or like sponges they absorb mm. information yeah. like new, new languages really yeah. then like if you're uh, in your 80s you're not expected to be like like starting a degree in mathematics for example mm. um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's perfectly plausible to do it in fact it's it's, it's recommended to you that you challenge yourself like that and mm. uh, so i think we are, there, there is a, a general yeah. intuitive sense of um, uh, different levels of neuroplasticity across yeah. the yes. but can i just clarify that what people how people misunderstand plasticity they think that if exercise changes the brain Therefore, do, sitting around doing nothing means your brain never changes. Like this is how mm. people, I think, are misunderstanding plasticity. Yeah, okay. that, not, that there are certain things that don't that make the brain stay there and mm. be boring and not move. Like I genuinely think that that's mm. kind of the way, um, you know, some media coverage. Yeah, can well, I think um, understanding that neuroplasticity works in both directions. Well, that's the thing is that those stories make it sound like something changes your brain permanently but your brain's changing all yeah. the time so yeah. something yeah. else can change it back you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. and you get the same thing in these days with, with another field called epigenetics which is yeah. the idea that you can turn your genes on and off and this is treated in the same way like it's some amazing revelation and, and, and revolution yeah. in, in biology when that's how genes work they get turned on and off you know they make proteins or they well, don't make proteins and, but, but, but people take it as you can turn your traits on or off which is a completely different mm. sort of thing that um, epigenetic thing, I think there is a revolutionary component to it, and like the essentially a uh, Lamarckian inheritance. Yeah, except that that's all bollocks. <laughs> Guys, can you explain what epigenetics is and Lamarckian blah blah is? Well, the, the epigenetics is a mechanism of, uh, at, at a molecular level of turning genes on and off. So a gene is just a piece of DNA 
codes for a protein. And we've got about 25,000 of those genes in each of our cells. And some of the cells need to make some proteins and other cells don't. So your blood cells need to make hemoglobin. So they turn on the hemoglobin gene, that is, they make protein from it. And in other cells, that gene is just sitting there and it's turned off. And one of the ways it's turned off is it's packaged really tightly by other proteins, and that's called epigenetic regulation. And one of the things about it is that it, the function of that is to maintain in a cell a kind of cellular memory of what type of cell it should be. So okay. in a blood cell, all those non-blood cell genes are, are packaged really tightly and all the other ones are... are open, as we say, so that they can be turned on. And in a nerve cell, you have a different subset. And as those cells divide, that memory is retained. Now, lately, there's an idea that that memory, uh, first of all, that that uh, the gene expression can be can be affected by your experiences. Yeah, which so is my, true. my grandmother is afraid, or, um, got attacked by a giant spider, that's why I'm afraid of spiders. Well, so this is, the, so this <laughs> is, a, this is a step further. Yeah. Okay, yeah. First of all, the first step there was your grandmother's genes were, ter- were changed. Or some, some, some gene was changed in your grandmother's brain, for example, um, which is perfectly fine. That's how genes work. And, you know, the job of many genes is to respond so the cell can respond to the environment. Just like a bacterium responding to nutrients, all of our cells in our body do the same thing. Um, and so you can have, for example, stress response genes, which are activated or, or deactivated in response to really scary stimuli in a way that kind of regulates the future sensitivity of that system. So okay. that's fine. And your immune so system does the same thing. So there is a basis to those oversimplified stories? Well, the oversimplification comes with the idea that that can be passed on to the next generation. And this is what Dave was talking about. It's called Lamarckian evolution. So Lamarckian evolution okay. is the idea of the inheritance of acquired traits. So imagine oh, okay. uh, a, giraffe that, a, a giraffe is reaching its head up and, and pulling it leaves, and the fact of its reaching its head up makes its neck longer, <laughs> and then that gets passed on to its offspring. When in fact, what we know happened was giraffes with longer necks had more offspring because they could, get they could reach food. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, it, so it's a, the mechanism is, is different. And actually, in mammals, the, the, the supposed evidence for that transgenerational epigenetic inheritance is so shoddy. <laughs> it's honestly appalling um, stuff. So I'm, I'm well, you, you push my button. <laughs> <laughs> uh oh, <laughs> next topic. <laughs> um, can I just mention Limitless? Did anybody like that or think there was anything redeemable in it? Again, if I presume everybody listening has already watched it, it's kind of like Lucy, smart drug, changes a guy's life. So the one thing that I found just really awful about it, I mean, I found the scientific premise of it not that bad in that he didn't start doing telekinesis and flying and stuff like that. (laughs) He was just very smart. Uh, But the really irritating thing was that all that he could think of to do with that was cheat the stock market. You know, it was just like, here's this suddenly really smart guy, and that's the best he can come up with to to make use of that. It was so unimaginable. Okay, what would you guys do if you had a super pill in the morning that would make you as smart as you possibly could be? What would you do? You're already as smart as you. What do you mean? Oh my God, that was an insult. (laughs) Considering you're all dumb. (laughs) Okay, considering you could lock it. If you could unlock your potential... Um, to be I twice as productive, or yeah, yeah. See, um, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, Dave, I think you do something to do with super intelligence and um, learn, learning so efficiently. Yes, please. We just come like just um, focusing on the, the limits of limitless and the underlying model of intelligence that it's uh, that it's peddling is that it's about like a 
very high quality, like very fast uh, reasoning. That uh, like super intelligence is essentially like a like a, like a very enhanced like reasoning capabilities, logical logical thinking capabilities. That was the initial the assumption in um, in cognitive science. So you have like neural and Simon like doing their general problem solving, creating their general problem solving mm -hmm. uh, program, which was able to like solve some pretty really impressive uh, like uh, uh, mathematical geometric problems, etc. And created uh, like amazing buzz in the artificial intelligence and cognitive science community. And um, that within 20 years we were going to have some um, artificial scientists on this basis. It turns out that um, expert performance, superior performance, is actually based on um, on, on, on knowledge basis. On uh, schematic representations of um, on the topic, mm -hmm. so the idea that um, you can rapidly form uh, so then these schematic understandings um, at that sort of speed uh, it was 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 slightly ludicrous, um, but. Um, yeah, again, this, this idea of focusing on the notion of, um, of uh, massive IQ as being essentially massive calculation ability, not massive logical reasoning abilities, which I think is, is, is grossly oversimplified. Yeah, it's interesting, because that is sort of the way that artificial intelligence up to yeah. now has gone. It's yeah. like just brute power, basically. Yeah. You put more and more uh, units yeah. in, in there and let it just eat more and more yeah. data, and, and it learns things. But it, but but lately, there have been some that, that do a more a recognition thing. So yeah. Deep DeepMind mm -hmm. does a a pattern recognition sort of thing. That's why I was able to play, to learn Go. to play the game Go, yeah. which is all about that. And even to the point where, you know, if you're asking experts what they're doing, they often don't have a lot of insight yeah. into how they're doing things. But um, I mean, one of the amazing things with that, that that computer, which lately beat one of the, you know, at least the European Go champions. Yeah. So amazing, yeah. amazing thing. Um, but one of the things that was really interesting was that when the world champion was talking about it, he, he called one of the moves that the deep mind had done yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Mm. So there's an there's yeah. an aesthetic sort of elegance to it. It was something that that not only it wasn't just a good move or a clever move, it was a creative move. Mm. And that's where yeah. that, that aspect of that intelligence became really interesting. Yeah. Because it was it was generative. It was something novel. Yeah. It wasn't just brute force powering it through it. And yeah. he, he was like and I, the interesting thing was he started to get better having played against <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. That's right. Uh, yeah. Because it was a yeah. style it was a style that no one had ever come up yeah. with and he'd never been exposed to. So. But I suppose the idea that you were talking about Dave of what actual super intelligence would look like yeah. compared to how it's often portrayed. I suppose that, from a filmmaking point of view, it's it's far easier for them to depict it as this almost like mission like yeah, you know yeah, ability. Yeah. So how how do you think it would be possible to to represent that in a film or to depict what what you're uh, well, in a film that people would go see? By orders of magnitude, the best representation of super intelligence I've ever been, like fictionalized representation is um, Ted Chiang's uh, short story, Understand. Um, again, it's a, a smart film. Mm -hmm. So this guy um, like falls through the ice, is under the ice for like, a couple of hours, pulled out, a large section of the brain has been uh, it's been destroyed. Thank and this, the, the whole idea of this drug is that it regenerates lost brain tissue, but it, like essentially there's hypertrophy, like a hyper hyper development. And so the individuals that the worse the brain damage, the higher the the, the, the final attempt, like a attained level of intelligence. Actually, um, phenomenon was like that with John John Travolta, where he has a he has a glioma, 
But it, it starts connecting different parts of his yeah. brain. It's the one where he learned Portuguese in, in a day. I watched at the very same time that I watched Michael Hayes and Angel, so I can't pick them apart. Yeah, it's an old in my head. He's yeah, 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 yeah. super smart and has and wings. Has wings <laughs> and really likes sugar. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it was the sugar. But one of the interesting things is, is you know, in in terms of the intelligence, is that you have this one, on the one side this brute computational power but on another side you have you have insight and you have creativity you have moments of genius and, and, and these sudden leaps that we were talking about earlier and actually getting back to smart drugs one of the things that may do that is thing and I'm not recommending it is things like LSD right and, and, and so there are there are drugs exactly that are yes they open the doors of perception and they and in fact Literally allow. Reconfigure your yeah, they your they literally allow parts of your brain to talk to each other that, yeah. that yeah. don't usually. Uh, so instead yeah. of deep learning, just go to the deep web and buy LSD. <laughs> well, I mean, there actually is uh, at least one example of a Nobel <laughs> of in. a Nobel laureate <laughs> who, who is quite open about the fact yeah. that his, his he he was a he was a previously unremarkable and uh, scientist in terms of his achievements, but he had one really great idea, which is called the, the polymerase. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's called the polymerase chain reaction, yeah, and that yeah, came yeah. to him while he was on LSD. Yeah. And he hasn't done anything else since, but one of our institutions advocate people. <laughs> That's right, stay in school. Yeah. 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 If, you, if you don't want to use LSD, can, are there other mi mind-altering techniques like... Um, meditation or fasting that you could recommend that might actually well, I mean, one give of the you things, those insights uh, as well. You know that I Dave find for, for those things is, all the tips. <laughs> is to um, you know think about some problem. You're trying to solve some problem. Think about it for a long time. Think about it hard, and then just leave it alone for a while. Mm -hmm. And then you know some yeah, yeah. But and then go for a walk on the beach, whatever in the shower or something like that. When you're not yeah. thinking about it at all, your mind is actually kind of a little bit free floating when you're not telling it what to be thinking about and it, it, it sometimes the answer just pops into your brain um, yeah i have a, like a so like a fundamentally different approach to how we can enhance like our mental capabilities and like i'd argue that doesn't involve long walk, walks on the beach uh, no, it certainly doesn't. <laughs> um, but our I, I basically our like our current approach to education is um, grossly inefficient and so if you look at this idea of ex experts, they form, like say an expert physicist forms a deep conceptual map of their, of their domain, which potentially contains thousands of technical terms. And in a Hollywood ones. movie, that would be on a, a transparent piece of glass and they'd be working yeah. furiously. <laughs> you see the movie Super Intelligence with Dave scribbling furiously, like Russell Crowe. <laughs> but those... Um, Attaining those uh, deep expert like representations of the, actually, yeah, I should probably just uh, point out that the key finding from the, the from cognitive science from the study of experts of sphere forms is that our capabilities or competence is literally determined by the quality of these schemas, these, these mental models. So, so if we learn bad. Yeah, we can't so, think good. Yeah, that, 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 yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so that, that, that's exactly it. So the argument Derek Zoolander explains yeah. science. <laughs> so the argument here is that our conventional education process, the development of these schemas is actually indirect. It's not the key, it's not the explicit focus of, of, of education. Whereas I'm arguing that if we explicitly focus on logically constructing expert mental models from the early stages of learning, um, that. That essentially we essentially become mini experts from the earliest, like at, at, from an early stage. Mm. So we create these mental, logical, mental representations of the field, which we elaborate systematically um, as uh, as we progress. So you're, essentially, we're talking about accelerated 
the expertise um, logically constructing expert mental models reverse engineering the works of experts like say of Isaac Newton um, ex- and pulling out their underlying deep met, deep, their, their schematic representation using that for ourselves or using that as a, as a starting point for our own, um, our own thinking teaching as we know it would completely change so people who like being teachers now might not like that version where they have to think a lot more not that teachers don't think Mm. I'm not saying that but they they frequently don't (laughs) but uh, I I mean it's interesting one of the things that that you know that I think we can define human intelligence on comes from having these these schemas about things so we know that you know we we learn that A causes B or B is B is in certain relation to C and and so on and we build up yeah we build up those relationships and a map of those but the the really amazing thing is that then we can build up abstract relationships not only does A cause B Mm. types of things like A cause types of things like B and then we can say actually that even just the nature of that relationship is like the nature of this relationship between other things. So, so we but build up more and more abstract kind of kind of levels. And what I'd argue is that um, conventionally that um, progressive abstraction is actually really inefficient. It's really a, it's a, it's haphazard. Yes, I agree. So, yeah. so if you look at the history of mathematics, for example, yeah. we, you, you actually see that progressive abstraction yes. from some um, some basic arithmetic yeah, yeah, to yeah, algebra yeah. to um, abstract algebra, right. um, etc. Um, but this is over like hundreds of years. Well, you yeah, see it in the history of science too. Yeah. You know, if you think about, say, information theory that that, that um, Claude Shannon developed yeah. at, at Bell Labs, he was talking about you know ways to, to measure the amount of information in a message and how you would transmit that. All we wanted to do was get an efficient way to transmit signals through through wires. And it turns out he he you know came up with an equation that is exactly the same as an equation in thermodynamics that describes something called entropy, which is yeah, an amount of disorder yeah. in a system. And they were completely separate things. That kind of convergence showed yeah. that there was something hugely deeply fundamental yeah, yeah. about that relationship, that information is effectively the opposite of disorder and you can yeah. quantify it in exactly the same way. Yeah. But the, the abstraction of that was an, was an accident. Yeah, yeah. But that, that's my point exactly. Yeah. And we, if we took control of that process, yes. we could like systematically abstract. Well, it's really, um, it's really interesting because one of the things that... Um, that um, you can think about in across science is that each of us, what we tend to do is we teach biology, we teach chemistry, we teach physics and so on, and we get down into the nitty-gritty and the details, but what we don't teach is general system theory. So there are systems that operate that have, you know, say positive feedback or negative feedback, but there are principles that operate across economies, societies, networks of neurons, networks of genes, and there's an incredibly powerful framework there that has only been learned, again, by accident, and is almost never explicitly taught to to anybody. They just don't teach... We, we hope students learn the principles, yeah. but don't teach them. Yeah, and it continues to the third level as well, where you know you, you teach this content, but you hope that somehow organically these principles or these frameworks will become abstracted. And, and some people it will, and some. But it's, that's it's kind of un- that's unfair, th- or inefficient. I shouldn't say unfair. It's the motive. It's inefficient to expect people to to hope people get that. Well, the, 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 the research in cognitive science on expertise shows that, that this analogical ex- abstraction. Um, Essentially, doesn't occur like to any great extent, mm-hmm. and like if you can pretty much quantify um, like the, 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 the level of abstract that people engage in, and it's very very low. Yeah. Um, so well, I mean, because maybe it's because we're, we're, we're there's so much to know these days. It's very hard to be an expert across things and see and see patterns across things because we never get exposed to them because yeah. we're so busy <laughs> drilling down into our own little areas. So it yeah. becomes from an educational point of view, but also from a research point of view, it just becomes extremely difficult to. Yeah. Even 
get the perspective that you would require to make those analogies because you're but only ever seeing yeah. one yeah. bit of it. But what I'd suggest is that um, our educational system, um, the, the, the net effect of our educational system is that we um, don't have the much capabilities to do that. Uh, and it's only as you get like, as get get old and retire yeah. Yeah. that they start thinking about the big picture and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and start attempting to integrate. Whereas if we were properly educated, yeah. you know, it's like a strongly schemogenic approach to learning. Yeah. Um, we could we well, could I, do that. Uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think we can at least explicitly highlight those principles, and then people can deploy them mm. in different scenarios, which yeah. is which really is. For me, the kind of the, the definition of, of intelligence is you learn some conceptual stuff, not just yeah. detailed stuff, mm. pre precise examples, but you've learned some principles, and then you can see how they would apply in a new scenario. Yeah. Mm. That's intelligent behavior. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but again, we, we never teach it explicitly. We just hope that it's absorbed. Partly, I think, we don't teach it explicitly because probably all of us have been through that training and would find it really difficult yeah. Yeah. to actually expound on those <laughs> That on that approach. Yeah, and the emphasis on, on road learning is so entrenched and so fundamental to the system and the yeah. way things are structured, it would be... That's it. It's highly incentivized. Yeah, yeah. So we need to think like that and give all the students LSD all the time and then they yeah. will be learning the way. Can I ask a question that's completely opposite of optimizing brain function? How much of your brain, of, an, of the adult brain, can be destroyed and still leave you functioning kind of normally, quote-unquote? Like Phineas Gage... Um, which I talked to you, Richard, about before, and yeah. the whole and uh, the fact that he was fine apart from horrible um, outbursts metal of rod. bad language. Yeah. And, oh yeah, apart from the metal rod sticking <laughs> through his head. Sorry. Yeah, it seems like you can get by without. Pretty large. Um, just one hemisphere. Yeah. yeah like so I'm watching you're born with just one hemisphere, you wouldn't let me remove one of your hemispheres right now. If you're born with one hemisphere, the brain, I mean, the, because of the, the way that it develops, um, it can, you know, or the functions can go to the other, to the other hemisphere, basically. Mm. Um, I mean, there's even people born with a very, very thin layer of cortex that yeah. you would yeah. almost yeah. say <laughs> is no brain, but there is, there is actually something there. Yeah, they're functionally normal. Yeah, yeah. To, 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 to a large extent, yeah. As in, yeah. you might never tell they'd any learning disabilities or anything. Yes. I'm just thinking about what my brain looks like. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I need a scan. There, well, are, there are cases of, of people. Well, there are cases of people who have no idea there's anything wrong with their brain yeah. until they volunteer to be a control subject <laughs> in an experiment. Right. Yes. that happened yeah. in Trinity actually. One of Britain, the first, well. one of the first people who went into our scanner in Trinity ended up. Well, I won't say the details, but yeah, discovering it. something that yeah. was uh, unexpected, let me say, that was along those lines. Yeah, there was a case in Berkeley where uh, a guy volunteered, I think he was a professor in one of the economics or some other department, and he volunteered to be a control. And when he got in the scanner, they discovered he was a natural split brain. He had no corpus callosum yeah. at all. So completely, it was a rare genetic thing where he knows... he had kind of a... An intact personality. He was fine, yeah. Like it would only become manifested if you presented something to one visual hemifield very briefly. So he was walking around, you know, holding mm. down his. Well, again, that's a, you know, post. when that develops developmentally, <laughs> it, it's it's a little different because actually some of the there are other pathways that cross yeah, between connect, the brain, yeah, exactly, and yeah. some of the some of the nerves actually go down. They take an alternate route. It's a, yeah. that's a actually an evolutionarily more ancient route, and mm. if, if they're New pathways is blocked. They'll go back to the old. Fall back and take a detour back to the old way. Yeah. Whereas if you have people who you know acutely have their brain. Can you give an example of that? How how does that work? That you fall back to you know like 
in what circumstances? Well, literally, if, if for example, in this case, the, the two halves of your cerebral cortex are normally connected by hundreds of thousands of nerve fibers, but they they need to cross uh, that divide between the two hemispheres at a very early point in development when there's only a few cells making a little bridge for them to follow. And if that bridge doesn't form right, then the axons don't get across, so the nerve fibers can't get from one side to the other. But there is another pathway which is sort of lower down in the brain that ha makes a connection anyway. It's, an, it's, it's a more ancient connection in animals that didn't have the what's called the corpus callosum, this connection. So the axons actually turn around they, they try to get across, they, they can't. They turn around, they go all the way down to the bottom of the brain, and they get across World that World works. <laughs> yeah. 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 Literally, it's like taking a detour. Yeah. Okay. And this other yeah. phenomena like, like blindsight, which is also thought to operate on an older visual pathway, when the younger, evolutionary speaking, one gets damaged. You can fall back on this other backup visual pathway almost. So these, yeah, there are some, some redundancy is present in the brain. And I remember, okay, I don't really have any details. It, it was a case study in a book. I think it was it was it Rami Chandran or something wrote about his dad who had a stroke and he went from, it probably wasn't him, it was somebody else. He, his dad went from crawling to walking. He learned everything brand mm -hmm. new all over again. Does that, does that ring a bell at all? Might, might have been Rami Chandran. But, it, but it is possible to have a stroke <clears throat> and go from not, from basically sitting there like paraplegic mm. and not being able to sort of write or speak <laughs> properly to fully functioning again. Yeah, like the people, brain can yeah. entirely yeah, some people heal recover. itself. Yeah. Well, some people, it may be <clears throat> learning ways to compensate for mm. the damage to certain mm. areas so that other areas kind of kind of take over. But again, you know, that that's highly variable and some people do better mm. after stroke than, than other people. But yeah. And I think that's, as we mentioned earlier, that's one of these areas where the potential smart drugs which open yeah. up your plasticity yeah. windows might... Absolutely. Yeah. And doesn't, out, just get to the whole um, touchy-feely side, but doesn't outlook actually help too? If you're a more positive person, will you heal quicker, learn faster? Actually, the one thing that's predictive of, of better recovery is pre-stroke IQ. Pre-stroke mm. IQ. So, so there's an idea that, that um, you know, IQ or intelligence varies across people, but it's actually, it's not anything particularly focused on one part of the brain. It's, a, it's more just a kind of an indicator of how robust and mm. efficient your, your brain is. It's a cognitive and reserve idea. Exactly, yeah. this idea, yeah, it's so called it's cognitive, yeah. cognitive reserve, and um, the idea that you've got a little bit uh, in reserve, and if you get damaged to one area, then you've got a person who had more reserve will recover more quickly, and that's certainly the um, the very consistent sort of observation. So it's pseudoscience, things that I've read about people that are more positive will be able to Motivation is important, though. Well, motivation is linked to um, placebo responses. So in Parkinson's, for example, um, the motor tremor, like it, one of the standard treatments for Parkinson's is deep brain stimulation in, say, the substantial nigra, which is like massively degraded in like during the disease. But um, there have been a number of studies looking at uh, sham uh, surgeries where they'll, they'll cut the scalp and uh, put the patient through what looks like the entire procedure of installing um, like a, a deep brain stimulator. But what they find is that Surprise, um, we did no surgery. <laughs> substantial improvement in motor coordination in, mm. a, in a large number of these patients. And so their the tremor is, is, is um, remarkably reduced. So it's all in their so head. In this case, yeah. Um, mm. So placebo response is, um, is the magnitude of placebo response is actually correlated with um, optimism. That mm. seems to be one of the predictors of, of placebo responding. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so you can, you can then, you're, you're then essentially linking 
that positive clinical outcome uh, for these Parkinson's mm-hmm. patients with a personality trait. Yeah. There were other studies as well where people suffering from, I think it was bipolar um, yeah. disorder, <laughs> were put in a scanner, an fMRI scanner. The scanner wasn't turned on, yeah. but there was a significant reduction in their depressive symptoms as a result of going through that, that process. Uh, now, nothing happened in the scanner that were subjected to no magnetic fields or anything, but they were involved in some sort of medical procedure. Yeah, and it's, it's, Is that why homeopathy effect. and witch doctors and prayer works? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes and no. I mean, <laughs> there, is an, there is an element of placebo response. Placebos are brilliant. Like, yeah. Placebos yeah. should be the first medication I, everybody is given. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But right. the other reason those things seem to work is that they're usually taken for intermittent complaints yeah, you know vague intermittent complaints so <laughs> yeah. you're going to feel better anyway because these things naturally it get just, better or yeah, worse yeah. and you only so take the medication you when you're on the down trough right <laughs> you know when yeah. you're on the downside and you're going to come up again but people say oh i took the medication and i got better so they yeah. link the two things together obviously but you would have gotten better anyway yeah, yeah. yeah. the, the response is strongest for um uh, disorders where there's um, a strong subjective component to how bad mm. disorders like depression, pain, yeah, a broken leg, for example. <laughs> exactly, yeah. it. So, unsurprisingly, uh, cancer isn't particularly yeah. affected by the yeah. mental health. Mm. Um, but the issue of motivation is an interesting one because one of the big problems with frontal brain injury after car crashes or you know, frontal impacts is one of the things that, that does suffer is people's motivation, which can be a real barrier to rehabilitation. People can maybe not be as motivated to engage in rehabilitation. So programs. recovery should be holistic, even though a lot of people, I don't know, that sounds kind of... New age Yeah, it does. <laughs> I don't, well, but it should be holistic. Like, you should, no? Well, you, yeah, and there's lots of aspects, you know, in any medical yeah. situation where you have to treat the person as much yeah. as treating yeah. the, the, their disorder, yeah, right? Yeah. So, yes. I think the big picture is, is important in, in all these things, yeah. yeah. Just not, don't use the word holistic. <laughs> well, no crystals. <laughs> no crystals. <laughs> it's been compromised. Fatally compromised. Yeah. I just meant it in the sense from, um, in nursing literature, they use yeah. it to mean um, pain management. Mm, they yeah. talk about placebos and talking to people and actually... Yeah. Um, even them describing their pain takes a load off, like literally, and they well, feel a bit there's, better. There's having pain, and then there's suffering from having pain. Yeah. Right. So you can yeah. you can yeah. have the same amount of pain, but suffer less from it because someone has been sympathetic to you mm. and not. You know, so, the, yeah, all of those things are because you're being good. so. Should should you ignore people when they're crying out in pain, and it will just go away? <laughs> I'm joking. Yeah, they'll feel worse then. So yeah. They'll feel worse. Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. <laughs> Fine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we're just gonna. Uh, this is my segue because I don't really have a good segue to yeah. Gattaca, and I did want to talk about it. But um, the segue being, can we genetically engineer people to get rid of all this crud so we don't have to figure it out in the first place? Get rid of pain. Get rid of people who have bad eyesight or prone yeah. to stroking out and all this kind of stuff. Well, just have the perfect human. It's really interesting. I mean, first of all, we wouldn't want to get rid of pain. Pain is there. No, for okay, a that's kind of. Yeah. If you want to get rid of pain, you can have. No, I mean, like uh, get rid of phantom pain yeah. or pain that's. Lep- leprosy will get rid of pain because it kills your pain receptors. It's not <laughs> good. <laughs> yeah, that is not good. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, obviously the, 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 the whole idea of um, genetic modding is, is really you know coming to the fore these days, and, and the, because we we are able to sequence so many people's genomes now. I mean, the first the first the human genome sequence took like 10 years and cost $3 billion and took hundreds and hundreds of scientists around the world 
and now it can be done in a, in a day for about a thousand dollars. So it's happening now on a scale of tens of thousands, or hundreds of thousands of, of people, and that's allowing us to get so much more information about which genetic variants or mutations, you know, we all carry many of those, are associated with various traits or risk of disorders or uh, and so on. And, and that raises the idea that once we have that knowledge, we'll be able to be predictive, right? We'll be able to look at an embryo or a bunch of embryos and, and genetically test them and, and predict things like risk of disease, risk of autism, uh, intelligence, you know, all sorts of, of different traits. And, and, you know, it's already done for many diseases. It's in IVF, you do prenatal genetic screening for cystic fibrosis or or you know, fragile X or, you know, all sorts of things. Uh, but the, the, the idea is that you might be able to do that for many other things that are not disorders. For, for just enhancing traits. people, making sure they've got 20, 20, everyone has to be born with 20-20 vision and... You, could I mean theoretically you could the problem there's a so Gattaca was based on that premise it was the idea that that, that that's what happened all the time every embryo was screened for a bunch of things and then the ones that had mutations were not used right the, the problem with that is every mutation has lots sorry every embryo has lots of mutations anyway so many that if you discard this one because it's got mutation A and this one because it's got mutation B and this one because it's got mutation you'll have no embryos left you can't you can't select against everything at the same time um, plus, every time you generate an, uh, an egg or a sperm cell, you're introducing mutations. The DNA is being copied. It's an incredibly faithful process, but it's not 100% faithful. So uh, we, we will never be able to get rid of all mutations because we're making them all the time. And in fact, natural selection is getting rid of mutations constantly. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a balance between the introduction of new mutations into the population and then natural selection is weeding them out, the bad ones, because it, if it kills you, it's gone. If it reduces the number of children that you have, it'll be gone in a couple of generations. So there's a, well, there, there is a balance. There is this dysgenic argument that uh, medical science is advancing, so individuals who wouldn't have been able to reproduce yes. are now in being technically enabled to reproduce. So that level of um, uh, loss of deleterious mutations yeah. is, 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 is slowing down because of te technological advancements. It's true. On, on some level, that's probably true, and I guess actually uh, myopia would be a good example of that. Yeah. Because yeah. You know, in, that in ancient yeah. times, right yeah, before spectacles were, were invented, yeah. <laughs> you, you were dead. Yeah. Yeah. And um, asthma might be another one in that, um, you know, before inhalers and things like that, you, people with asthma that was serious died. And yeah. um, so um, the, you may be right, there may be a component of that happening. And There's an interesting um, study comparing, uh, like, like Francis Gosman, um, cousin of uh, Charles Darwin, like one of the first psychometricians, like real, real statisticians, did uh, psychometric studies of thousands of people uh, during these um, the great ex exhibitions. Mm. They'd come in, they do these reaction time tasks, and he accumulated like what, what year was this? Your time span? Eighteen eighties. Yeah, 1870s, I think. Yeah, yes. of, like yeah, so oh, like Yeah. Okay. So, um, but. A recent researcher analyzed current data, his data, and compared it to performance of. So these oh, were second cool. Victorian yeah. um, reaction times compared to modern reaction times. And this guy found that there's a, actually been a reduction in modern reaction times. And he argued for uh, that this was evidence for a uh, progressive dysgenic trend, a, a basic reduction. Could there be any other explanation for that? I think it's contradicted by a whole load of, of, <laughs> of evidence that, that suggests that actually yeah. intelligence has been increased well, like because we have, yeah. right, we have IQ scores yeah. for over a century yeah. and every time we do IQ scores they're normalized against the current population yeah. and the mean yeah. is set to 100. 
So you get the bell-shaped curve, and it's always around 100. But if you look at the absolute scores on those tests, they've been increasing decade by decade for 100 years. And, you know, there's a good argument, interesting arguments around that, that, it, first of all, it could be better nutrition, yeah. better education, better maternal nutrition, so the brain develops in a more optimal way. But also, it, it's the, the idea that we have a more abstract habits of thought yeah. now. The mm -hmm. kinds of things yeah. that we spend our time thinking about yeah. are just more abstract, and those are the yeah. sorts of things that are tested on IQ tests. Mm -hmm. Whereas before, if it, you were, you know, scrabbling around basically, for a living in the, in the dirt, yeah. basically, yeah. You didn't have much time to think about whether, uh, you know, when you, when you rotate this shape that way, it's the same <laughs> thing. Yes. But you could potentially still argue that, um, and um, you could potentially argue that's not necessarily incompatible with an argument for an underlying dysgenic trend. So, like, yeah, because we could all parts. eventually turn into Krang, where we're just a brain inside. <laughs> just a brain inside <laughs> a robot. You're a turtle reference. Like, IQ is heavily culturally mediated, so increasing literacy rates is going to improve. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I'd say like the our, the the culture has become far more abstract. Just even looking at a video, uh, sorry, a DVD yeah. programmer, yeah, yeah, yeah. like a remote control, it's it's, it's hieroglyphics. And yes, that's so why the kids can do it and we can't, because yeah. their brains are plastic <laughs> enough to absorb so that. Reaction times are rel relatively elementary uh, in terms of physiology. Yes. Uh, so you could, you could yeah, theorize there. But there's that. also maybe you've got a practice effect there in that people are, you know, if they're more manually, doing manual jobs maybe. They're yeah. actually just manually, their reaction times are faster from almost an athletic type of mm. practice because yeah, yeah. there, yeah. there was a motor component to yeah, that yeah, yeah. response, yeah. right? Yeah, so like maybe Galton's original sample might not have been as okay with interacting with buttons and you yeah. know, responding quickly to things that, like we are with computer mice. No, but, but the point was that their reaction times are faster. Faster yeah. now? Yeah. No, they're, they're oh, faster they're then, then now, yeah. Okay. So could that, could that be because yeah. machines <laughs> can calibrate better now? So the machine... Oh, there's there a, there a whole, okay. whole load of them. Oh, uh, there's a lot of them. It's wrong, we're not stupider than our I'm not saying I believe this But I mean, it is interesting to think about the dysgenic effect, so the idea that actually modern medicine is allowing some mutations to reach a higher frequency than they would have otherwise, and then maybe it, you know, there's a rationale then yeah. to do something about it. If we if we know what they are, if we know that there's mutations that cause asthma yeah. or even myopia, or, or certainly but it's already problem. done for more our, severe our, diseases. Our understanding of uh, complex um, traits is a very our understanding of genetics underpinning say something like um, intelligence is extremely weak. It's weak. It's getting better. Like these, these um, uh, genome-wide associations, yes. studies, mm -hmm. and potentially thousands of studies. Oh, sorry, thousands of genes. Yeah. Working on one. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I agree. And, and uh, although, in one sense, I think you can think about it um, as a, instead of there being genes for intelligence, I think you can think about it as a, as a load of, as a load of hits that your system is, is, has taken and that actually we're all really far away from the sort of platonic ideal of a fully wild type human that has no yeah. mutations because any one of us has about 200 serious kick-ass mutations that are doing something serious, uh, plus all these common variants. So, so actually, Gat the premise of Gattaca was that progressively those things have been weeded out of the population, and then you end up with Jude Law and Uma Thurman <laughs> as the as the uber the uber humans. And um, uh, but it's an interesting idea to think about: is what would a wild-type human look like? One that had no mutation, that every gene not was Jude working. Law, cause you did not age well. Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but this idea of, of wild types uh, versus domesticated animals in if you look at the intelligence of, of um, domesticated like lab rats yes. compared to wild rats, 
well, actually, we had this debate on Twitter. Uh, wild rats are actually Uh-oh. smarter. They solve, yes. they solve mazes faster. Absolutely. And this is a gene- general finding across um, different uh, species like dogs, etc. Well, you know, uh, breeding, domesticating species is is selecting for yeah. them being stupid, basically. <laughs> you know, literally, because you want them to depend yeah. on you. After you want to be docile, they yeah. want to be tame. Yeah. You know, you really are absolutely it's selecting nice for them. It, it has been argued um, that this could be applied to us. Well, we've domesticated yeah. ourselves. <laughs> that's the so problem. We have self dominant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To a certain degree, in I think that's absolutely just true. Just brain power alone, are you talking about physical attributes and how strong yeah. or sturdy we are? How pretty, yeah, pretty much everything in yeah. terms of general robustness. But on um, one hand, maybe we have more feeble bodies. Um, we're brains. bred for less, yeah, muscle mass. <laughs> so but on the other hand, <laughs> we have. We're living in a world where there's enough nutrition and healthcare that we live longer anyway. Yeah, no, I, so, I, 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 well, I, the things we've, we've in a way transcended evolution because we, rather than our, our environment shaping us, yeah. we shape our environment, yeah. and and by doing that, we kind of short circuit the normal the yeah. normal processes by culture. Yeah, and like and then that culture influences our like our genetics. Influence our genes, it's like yeah, yeah, it's and in fact, I think you know, certainly if you're thinking about the the evolution of intelligence, that what you can see is that snowball effect. You know, yeah. at some point, at some point, we became just smart enough that you know, we could develop language, we could develop culture, and then everything went. You know, it became incredibly good to be a little bit smarter, yeah. and because we could, we could not just rely on our own learning. We could communicate things to other people. So then there was a cultural amplification and, and transmission, and it became cumulative. Exactly. So a sort of snowball effect, and then we changed the rules. Yeah. Right. We changed what was, from an evolutionary perspective, what was a good trait to have. It became much much better to be a little bit smarter and a little and as we did more and more it just kept going until our brains got too big for the birth canal (laughs) (laughs) i think one of the issues um, here when thinking about the genetics of intelligence is that um culture and the the the, the cultural accoutrements we take on uh, totally distorts uh, like the totally distorts our brains so like Mm -hmm. this this notion of literacy and being sort of a major cognitive upgrade uh, and I'm, I'm always, go- always going on about uh, Luria and his studies of um, illiterate and versus literate peasants during the 1930s and he gave them a, like a rake of cognitive tests and um, reasoning tests perceptual tests and found that um, the abstract capacities of the literate peasants who had very little schooling but they, they, they knew how to read, read and write um, was sim- they're, they're, they solved puzzles in similar way that we would the illiterate peasants um, were they weren't even able to represent the logical relationships between these simple puzzles, mm-hmm. um, and as a result, they couldn't they couldn't solve them. Yeah. So literacy is a major major upgrade, mm-hmm. yeah, like a major cultural upgrade. Yeah, I mean, it's basically a concept. set of abstract yeah. symbols that yeah. you can then manipulate, yeah. but in a recursive kind of a yeah. way. And, and, and yeah. um, so this notion yeah, so of of cult, the quality of the culture that that we imbibe, that that we grow up in, that yeah. molds our brain, yeah. um, is. I, I would argue is actually more important than the quality of our genes. That you can have quite a wide range of um, yeah. genetic. Um, well, I mean, I think uh, it's interesting if you look at the genetics of intelligence itself. Um, it's the, the two things are true that sound like they're um, contradictory. So, on the on the one hand, uh, it is the case that um, that there are relative differences in, in intelligence from birth, depending yeah. on how we define intelligence. Yeah. Some kids are just brighter than other kids, and that's anyone who's had a child or been a child or knows any children can can say that um, and those relative differences everybody's a special snowflake those relative <laughs> differences some are more special than others but the relative differences are pretty stable yeah. th- throughout life but 
education will increase everybody's intelligence yeah. because they're learning to read, they're learning yeah. all these things, and they're becoming smarter. That's yeah. why we go to school, right? yeah. not just to learn facts, but to become smarter. And, and, but the, so the, the two things are not... On the one hand, there's a clear environmental component. On, on the other hand, uh, there are differences that have a genetic innate yeah. basis. Well, I, I, t- I totally like, accept that. Um, but what I'm suggesting is that the, um, we, because we're, coming, we're essentially all coming from the same cultural background, so like it's water meets women, we don't really realise to what extent our brains have been moulded by, by our culture. Yeah. And it's when you look at these, um, intercult- these cross-cultural uh, mm-hmm. literacy studies that you think, holy crap, um, even at a basic perceptual level, um, there are major differences between, yes. like, um, mm-hmm. uh, between uh, literate individuals and illiterate individuals. Mm-hmm. So you can have a really smart, illiterate person, but they, in, in terms of performance on an on, uh, IQ test, like actually their abstract reasoning, they're going to be trounced by an average who's gone through schooling. I think you can think about it like athletic potential. You know, mm-hmm. and we have people vary in athletic potential, but you also need training, and you know, mm-hmm. to, in order to reach that. So you know, I could train forever and never be as fast as Usain Bolt, mm-hmm. but I'd get faster. Yeah. You know, so there is, um, and I, I think of intelligence in the same way that what you know the, the variance that's genetic is an intellectual potential, yeah. but it's education and training and, and, and logical thought that actually realizes yeah. it. Yeah. But I think um, I'd actually I'd, I'd, I'd give a complementary arg- argument. So we, there is some genetic potential there. Um, so for different individuals, and theoretically, if we understood um, that um, that. that biological system they could tweak it we could sort of amplify the, the, the underlying genetic potential of, of a given individual but I think the real gains um, in terms of human intelligence that would be gained that, that, that we can uh, attain are, are essentially cultural yeah I fully like the, the, I yeah. completely agree and actually I think we're seeing something like the invention of literacy happening now with the digital yeah, age that, that and the way that we're using technology and is it is that the next? You said that the biggest possible upgrade a human can have is literacy, um, in terms of learning. It, it's a major so upgrade. Yeah. A major upgrade is yeah is digital literacy the next upgrade or is it not quite the same leap? I actually don't think so. Like, um, in terms of our kind of, like this comes back to our earlier conversation about um, abstraction. Yes. Engaging in this type of um, digital li- di- digital literacy um, like uh, and becoming au fait with uh, like digital tools um, doesn't necessarily improve. It improves your 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 reach in a sense yeah. so you can solve more complex like more complex mathematical problems by using appropriate software but it doesn't actually improve your uh, the depth and quality of your thinking yeah. so it's it wasn't that so it, what I wasn't suggesting that that has happened already yeah. but I'm suggesting that the digital technology may I'm not talking about Twitter and being on yeah, Facebook yeah. and stuff like that I'm talking oh, about no. some sort of some in, in the future that the possibility of either you know using that technology to to boost intelligence in a collective way by enabling better brain-brain communication, so, you know, so, sort of a, uh, a, a super intelligence uh, uh, sort of basically thing. Basically talking or, about the Borg. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, the Borg, yeah. Or interfacing with, with computers in a way that, that we're offlining stuff that frees up more space or, or we're, you know, we're, we're using some tools that let us do something that never, I mean, in a way, mathematics is, itself is the same way. The invention of mathematics, not just numeracy, but all this sort of new mathematical tools. Like when calculus was invented, you know, that made people smarter. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. really did. It but let ha- us think things we never could have thought before. External storage, like books or 
Google or documents, that, that offloads a certain amount of it does, thinking. You don't sort of remember it's things. Offloading and, and, and essentially managing our, like our but it frees up working memory is, is one aspect. And, and, improve, and improving the, the efficiency with which we offload, like it's gonna, you're, you're going to get gains in, in, in performance. But the gains are going to be incremental gains. Yeah. I'm actually talking about sort of, um, uh, qualitative gain, like qualitative leaps forward in terms of um, uh, mental capabilities. And I think that's only going to happen when we actually learn to systematically abstract uh, and, uh, and, and learn, like, learn how to like, think at a, at a far deeper level than we do. But is the magnitude of that leap reduced because it's within that level of abstraction? Whereas like, the, the leap from concrete to abstract is obviously yeah. huge yeah, yeah. You know, in, in lots of ways. Mm. But what you're describing there of being able to abstract frameworks and schemas and principles is yeah. still within that abstract level. So, well, okay, if you come back to a fundamental definition of intelligence, so um, Charles Spearman, uh, like an early 20th century um, British psychologist, um, <coughs> he defined intelligence as basically the ability to reduce relations under garlands, and that's basically the ability to form links and infer links between concepts. Um, we're not taught explicitly how to do that at a, at a fundamental level. We're not ta- taught how to systematically abstract from, say, a story or a problem-solution or a proof that we're given and, and represent the, uh, the original expert's understanding of the, uh, and, and techniques and heuristics mm-hmm. represent those mm-hmm. explicitly and then use them for ourselves. We're it, not it, it, it's almost like that's what we call wisdom. Actually, and yeah, the idea yeah, that you that, can't. That's some, that's some people have the idea that you can't teach wisdom. Yeah. It can only be gained through cruel, hard yeah, experience. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? And so, yeah, so you stuff. can teach the facts, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you have to let the person themselves come to the yeah. realization. That's the only way. And I, yeah, I don't think that's true. I think you yeah. can yeah. shortcut it and just say, "Listen, yeah. I did a bunch of work here. So did a bunch of other people. Yeah. Here's the principle that we figured out. Yeah. I'll just tell you." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not to be kept surprised. There's a great quote by Aristotle at the end: "The greatest thing to be is a master of metaphor." Or to like the master metaphor has it can see similarities between dissimilars. Yes. So you're abstracting, mm. and it's like climbing up a mountain. Yes. You start yeah. seeing patterns in landscape yeah. that you can't see. And actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Douglas, Douglas Hofstadter would have the same yeah, yeah, course, idea yeah, yeah, that yeah. that basically intelligence and, an and consciousness is founded on yeah. analogy. Yeah. Yeah. And and yeah. And but it's research yeah. shows that we're systematically mm. really poor mm. at, at engaging in analogy, and I, and, yeah. and I don't think that's an intrinsic limitation of the human brain. I mm. think it's an it's an artifact of conventional education. Mm. That would yeah. right. okay. be my, my perspective. But the point I was making though was that if you viewed it as a curve in terms of like going up, is it is the leap from concrete to abstraction steeper than the leap you're talking about to extracting those general principles? Because it's it seems like it's almost just shallowing out. Well, as, as yeah, as like there's um, okay. If you think about it in terms of um, cognitive technologies. So lit- liter- basic literacy is a major, so if you look at um, like pre-literate uh, societies, you can see an increase in, in co- cognitive complexity, but then it starts to plateau. A bit like a, it's a technical, the evolution of a particular technological product. Mm. It becomes more and more efficient, and then <coughs> you, it like, like Moore's Law starts to flatten out, and then a new paradigm uh, like, uh, emerges. Mm. So literacy was a new paradigm. Mm. And these, uh, what I call weekly schemogenic learning approaches, um, I believe, are starting to flatten out. Mm. And we're starting, if, even with the flu effect, you're actually starting to see a slowdown. Yeah, that's in, true. In mm. That's true. And I think um, um, what I was talking about earlier, I wouldn't say it very well, is the idea of technology is not necessarily that it will make any individual person 
smarter, mm -hmm. but collectively, mm -hmm. I think it may make us smarter through those interactions with, you know, yeah. we were talking about DeepMind earlier, mm -hmm. things like that. If we, like the fact that that guy was playing DeepMind, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and he saw a move that he had never seen before, yeah. and he immediately incorporated it into his, yeah. mm -hmm. into his own game. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, the, you know, that was something that wouldn't have happened, yeah. and it clearly didn't happen over the thousand years that people have been playing Go and trying <laughs> yeah. to perfect it. Well, that's yeah. crazy, isn't so it? So it was, it, it was in a sense, a little qualitative <laughs> That's a minor yeah. thing, right? Yeah. But it, it's kind of a signal that that interaction with a different kind of intelligence, in yeah. the same way that yeah. our interaction with each other culturally mm. bootstrapped everybody's intelligence, yeah. the interaction with a, a, a an artificial of, intelligence, <laughs> it's not necessarily yeah. higher, it's different. Yeah. Well, But it wouldn't. Uh, uh, but that, like, obviously, like everyone would totally agree with like uh, the, the benefits of collective increase yes. in intelligence. Yes. But um, I have a personal vested interest in personally improving my yeah. own intelligence. Sure. Yeah. That's, that, that's what I'm interested. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, so Selfish, Dave. How do you go about doing that? Better living through yeah. dogs, man. Yeah. <laughs> Are there any shortcuts to gaining skills and knowledge? Like, I'm not talking about Johnny Mnemonic or anything. Actually, maybe I am. Are there any instant shortcuts to just acquiring knowledge? Not intelligence, but acquiring knowledge and skills. Uh, like, you, literally, literally using the mnemonics. Um, if, if all you're interested in is accumulating, expanding mm. your, your knowledge base, yeah, like use a meta loci or whatever. But does it that that can be facts, right? Memorizing yeah. facts. So, yeah. But, yeah. but for for achieving understanding, yeah. I don't know. No you have to think about stuff, right? You need yeah. to you need to <laughs> learn some facts and then think about how they relate to each other, yeah. and then be wrong for a while, but, and then yeah. So, so like from my perspective, I I, I think there are, and that's what essentially what I try and I'm teaching these um, these uh, super intelligent workshops that literally you can reverse engineer the um, the conceptual models that an expert is using to produce a particular work, and then. You so you're not make, essentially, you're not making a knowledge cage from, yeah, yeah, cake no, from scratch each time yeah, yeah. because you've got that. I don't know. You, you've got the powdered version yeah. from yeah. having well, the abstract. Well, the funny knowledge. thing is that what you're 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 kind of cherry picking, right? Because you're looking at the successful of cases, course, yeah. right? So you're looking at Newton when he was successful, yeah. but he had thousands of ideas that were wrong. Yeah, right? of course, you know, yeah, so because yeah. he didn't use this sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess <laughs> you're right. Yeah, you're right. He didn't. Yeah, but he didn't model his own self. One of the examples of reverse engineering that I give, like a step-by-step -step yeah, illustration, yeah. is Newton. Uh -huh. So, like reverse engineering is first law of first law of motion. And what what you see is that he actually borrowed that first law of motion from uh, from Descartes. So, like, say, forty years ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. um, but Newton used that as the basis for his second law and then uh, his whole his, his whole cosmology mm. uh, and totally revolutionised our understanding of, of, of the universe. Descartes had the same uh, building block mm. and came up with a ridiculous like vortex, vortex theory, yes. know, like, which went nowhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but what I show is that you can actually reverse engineer the heat structure of the of Newton's first law of, of, um, of um, motion. So it's essentially a law of inertia, um, and the deep structure of that law actually contains a second law that forces is um, forces actually something is an influence which causes acceleration f equals ma. Uh -huh. So theoretically, if if Descartes had used deep structure approach to learning, he could have actually he would have gotten to that You're point. You're being a little hard on Descartes. Well, systems. So that that's my point. Yes. Using these uh, using these approaches and can literally accelerate, essentially accelerate the reviews. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think. I mean, one of the interesting things too is that, and again, it may be a curse of our educational system now, is that for 
one of the things that, that sort of stymies creative insights like that is that we get led down the wrong path, right? So we, we, we think it's not the stuff we don't know, yeah. as Mark Twain said. It's, it's not the stuff you don't know. It's the stuff you know for sure that just ain't so. Mm. And, and so, you, you know, it's all the stuff that in a field we think we have these paradigms that such and such works like this, and we get, keep getting data, and it doesn't match until somebody yeah. Yeah. actually can back themselves out yeah. cognitively of the corner that the field has gotten into yeah. Yeah. and say, hang on a sec. You've forgotten the assumptions that we made this whole field on, and then you can do a little sidestep. And those those moments, uh, you know, I think that's where the sort of real creative genius is in 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 seeing something that everybody else doesn't even see as a thing. Yeah, they're trapped within the paradigm. Exactly. So actually, climbing down off the shoulders of giants. Yes. Well, no, climbing up. So like you can standing on their head. So the paradigm because you're working with them. Yeah, moving across a bit. Yeah, step outside of it. You step back from it. You know. Well, I'd like to see you abstract away from. Or step out from under it, maybe. I think. Well, there are some people who say I would have seen further, but giants were standing on my shoulders. I think exposure to other disciplines and other fields yeah. can be a real opener Absolutely. as well. So that's why I'm talking about standing mm. up and across. And yeah. Sort of, yeah, and also, the, 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 yeah, definitely the more ideas. People listening go, what? so what do we do with giants? Giants exist? I don't get it. What's the take home message? So we're some uh, tourists come to this with massive shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why not? Um, so can we just to wrap up can we get back to science fiction and just if everybody could tell me their favourite story or movie that kind of represents the promise of science fiction to really teach people how cool and the possibilities of neuroscience and cognitive research something that you watched and you were like yeah this is something that an actual neuroscientist can enjoy and there's not too many pinches of salt to take with it it's no, not total I'm, I'm stuck you go <laughs> I'm stuck for a good one the anti-Lucy in other words the anti-Lucy something that really inspired you yeah. or even as a kid what Actually, inspired you to get where you uh, are now the one I like is um, is The Matrix oh yeah. the best yeah yeah so I think The Matrix is amazing yeah. and um, actually it doesn't seem like it's about science or even about philosophy but it's a really deeply philosophical movie yeah. dis- disguised as, a, as an action movie uh, but one of the things I like about it is the idea that, that actually we're all of us creating our own world through our perceptions in a very active kind of a way and we're all, we all have our own matrix that we're stuck in um, and with that, yeah, <laughs> mind blown. I'd be out of mind blown. That's a paradigm, that yeah. brain, you, you don't actually see what's out there. What you experience is the brain's model yes. of what's out there. Exactly. And it's essentially a controlled hallucination. Yes. The, it, 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 as, there was a great new, recent story in New Scientist, and essentially talking about this, like saying that our experience is a controlled hallucination, but it's reined in by, by a sensory information, mm. by, by, by senses. Can you elaborate on that? I've got a, I've got a How can we all manage to agree on anything then? Well, that's the <laughs> ultimate question. That's the ultimate question. It's the external reality, which um, is, it allows us to have a consensual hallucination. Yes. Um, um, yeah, exactly. The, 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 the external so this re- isn't reality, this is no. a consensual hallucination. No, there is a, by what you say, there, there, there is a reality and we're all having the yeah, same... Yeah. The same hallucination to an extent, though only to an extent, yeah. because actually our, our perceptual systems are different. Yeah. And you know, if you think about 
different species, different animals mm -hmm. have very different perceptual systems and they see things completely different. Yeah. I mean, you know, insects might see the world even you know, 10 times faster than, than we do, literally in terms of frame yeah. rate and so yeah. on. So there's massive difference. We're all in our own yeah. subjective experience of an objective reality that, that, like Dave said, constrains it, but we filter it and construct it and make our, in, make our own would, inferences about it. But what would the world look like if you stepped outside everything? It would look like nothing. Well, you could. Be, there, there is no way to know. Yeah. The only yeah. information we have is through our senses. So, yeah. so there's people with tetrachromacy where they have more um, cells in the retina where they, yeah, they can experience a lot more colors yeah. than uh, maybe 100 hundred thousand times more colors than yeah. non-tetrachromats. So how they look at the world literally is very different to how we do. Yeah. But even the same world. Or even colorblind people the opposite Monet direction. Monet had so. a he had a cataract. He had his lens removed because of a cataract, and they think because of his comparing his same scenes over a time being painted mm. that he could see a light on the UV spectrum. Mm. Um, right. So, but even in terms yeah. of how we perceptually organize, how we, how we partition the world. Mm. So it was it to me there's a blast for them. But if you compare the um, how a chess grandmaster views a board compared to a, a chess novel, mm. it's fundamentally different. Like yeah. they're not there yeah. in, in one real, in, in an important sense, they're not looking at the same board. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, we develop professional and, and, expertise. And it's like, hey, see all that code falling down the screen, and the little dude <laughs> exactly. goes, that, that's not code, that's a girl in a red dress, yeah, yeah, yeah. and a steak. Exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like yeah. predator vision. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, that's exactly what the brain is doing. It's yeah. got a bunch of photons hitting your retina. What would the world mean if, you didn't have, if there yeah. were no senses? Well, you I don't know what that means. Yeah, I know. That's kind of yeah. I mean, you have to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. So, no. But what I'm saying is, the world is only our senses. There is no other way of experiencing. So, that is reality. Yeah. Well, some people, some philosophers, take it to that point that that because we only experience the world through our senses, that it only exists because we sense it. Yeah. Berkeley was like that. You know, you just get a bit. He must have been doing some heavy drugs. <laughs> it just gets ludicrous, and yeah. it's not necessary to take it that far. You know, you can still allow that there's an objective reality yeah. out there, and we we can measure it through things like mathematics. So we don't need our own senses. Yeah, necessarily. I mean that's a really interesting. The idea that you know mathematics that there are those abstract truths that just mm -hmm. exist in the universe, yeah. and it doesn't require us it's for for, for it to be sense. true that yeah. some mathematical axioms exist. Yeah. You know. And actually, Pi is a, a nice film representation of that. Have you seen Pi? No. It's a good film, actually. Remind me. Again, though, he goes off on the stock market thing when he develops his super intelligence. He's trying to develop a mathematical model of everything, and he applies it to the stock market, but he eventually it kind of consumes him with uh, kind of psychotic delusions, I think, towards the end. It's years since I've seen it, but it's interesting. Mm. Maths is drugs. Kind of. Yeah. <laughs> the most interesting recent film I've seen is Arrival, uh, which is a... Oh, yeah, it's meant to be really good. Uh, it's a... a um, a film adaptation of a short story by Ted Chiang, who's my favourite. Yeah. My, my favourite. <laughs> the rain started yeah. mentioning him next, so I'm like, he must be talking about him like 24 7. <laughs> but um, the whole idea is that these um, aliens visit, uh, they, they arrive, and uh, the, the governments, well, they arrive in like countries all across the world, so the government set up so these, uh, these teams to communicate with them, so they bring in a linguist, an uh, American linguist. Who tries to learn the language of these remote heptapods because they have like seven feet? Uh, so there's like symbols on them or something, or 
Uh, no, they, 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 the humans and the aliens interact through this, 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 this what they call a looking glass. And so they, 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 uh, they write on this looking glass. Oh, it's another one of those transparent people writing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Don't you have one of those in your office? <laughs> I but, need um, one. <laughs> the, the, the story, the film, is an exploration of the sniper wolf hypothesis, the basic, which is basically the idea that the language you speak fundamentally alters your perception of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you only have um, two words for colours, like light and dark, yeah. and that affects your ability to memorise that. Like a range of yeah, it's like that, that tribe in Africa who yeah. have never seen green, and yeah, so yeah. Their, their whole perceptual experience of green is different to yeah. yeah and or in Homer's so. The Odyssey, where they talk about the purple sea, I think it is because oh, the wine dark sea. Oh yeah, the wine dark sea. Mm. Yeah, so it's changed over time. Yeah, or even with, with um, apparently before oranges were imported to Britain we, the, we just had the word red like yeah. if you look at a robin <laughs> yeah. Yeah. if you look at a robin it's called robin redbreast it's clearly orange <laughs> but the, the word orange yeah, didn't yeah. exist and yeah. so the category of orange yeah. didn't exist because yeah. it wasn't separated yeah. that was yeah. just a, a shade of red that is actually orange though that's what me and my friend call it orange 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 but it turns out that the um, the language of these heptopods uh, so we have a causal perspective and uh, perception uh, and say um, uh, differential calculus uh, like you're looking at the, the evolution of the system over time and describing it uh, in terms of cause and effect these uh, aliens have a fundamentally different perspective and it's uh, essentially a, um, a simultaneous so we have a sequential perspective the perception they have a simultaneous perception so whereas um, we move through time and that's our perception of, 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 our, of, of, of how, how life um, no spoilers now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah actually, yeah. That, that, good point. Yeah. Never even thought Since of that. It came out last week or something. So yeah. Just, yeah, like really no spoilers. <laughs> no. Well, basically, the the, the, the upshot is um, the world is, is the is this linguist learns their um, learns their language and has a fundamental alteration in their perception of uh, of, of, of reality. Cool. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's, 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 it's a really oh, good film. I really want to watch yeah, it now. Definitely. Yeah. Let's go. Cool. Great. Um, yeah, I, there's a few I like. Um, we didn't really touch on AI too much, but Ex Machina is no, a nice, you know, discussion of it. You can um, hold you in some, at some point in the future. Well, that could yeah. be a whole other one because they're yeah. like, I know you're a huge fan of humans. And, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, humans are brilliant. Yeah, it's so really good. Good. yeah, yeah. I nearly finished the first the season. Swedish one, yeah. the English one, the British one. Oh, we're done. What? The British Sweden? The Swedish one, yeah. The Swedish one, I think, is much more. I'm not surprised now that. I read the first episode. It's much more plodding. So the. The UK, it, the UK one's it, better. It moves right along. Yeah. They, they, yeah, don't, yeah. they don't mess around. They, yeah. they, they really go too long. Chugging along. Yeah, yeah. I nearly finished the first season. Um, but relatedly, Westworld is great as well, and I've been yeah, uh, recommending it. Yeah. Um, but that would probably be a whole separate chat we could have. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say though, 2001, I, I like in terms of sci-fi because it yeah, just deals with such yeah. huge yeah. questions. And huge yeah, I want to bring up so you could actually say the line to Dave using the word Dave. Just I'm sorry, Dave. I, I, can't have a I can't yeah. do that day. Open the pod bay door, <laughs> Richard. <laughs> but that, that is just, it just deals with the big yeah. questions and massive kind of ideas around evolution and, and intelligence and yeah. leaps and yeah. you know, that whole jump yeah, to yeah. dealing with abstraction and that, those sort of issues. Um, I was also going to cheat because, uh, yeah, yeah, but in terms of 
neuroscience. It's not really sci-fi, but Memento for me is, is like a really lovely representation of how memory actually works rather than how it's easy to think it works. Yes, yeah. In terms of how, you know, what we remember yeah. is determined by the presence of this structure being attacked. Oh, about that. It really is genuinely yeah, a good movie. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Well, it's pushing it to call it sci-fi, but it yeah. does have a yeah, lovely depiction of how memory operates. I wouldn't have called it lovely, but well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's a bit tragic. Accurate. Yeah, accurate, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Right, because I was going to suggest Fifty First Dates, but Adam Sandler. I'm joking. That's the other. <laughs> yeah, that's the other Antarctic Amnesia movie, which yeah. I haven't seen. But <laughs> I don't know if it's as oh. um, hard. It's horrible because every day she's to wake up and meet Adam Sandler for the first time over and over again. No, I would wish that on nobody. <laughs> and here there's not much hippocampal anatomy in it, so you know, <laughs> hippocampal action. <laughs> so yeah, you uh, uh, yeah, no, it's just about like this idea of um, perception as a model. Like we don't perceive what's there, and like we like we have a our brain's model, and we perceive our brain's model of what's there, and that links into how we how we how we think what what memory is. Mm. So from that perspective, memory isn't about the past; mm. it's actually about the future. And what? Like, yeah, so like it's, it's, it's sort of mind blowing. Uh, memory. So if our re- if our perceptions, if our understanding of reality is it's composed of, of, of these memories and um, like formed into these abstractions, these um, schematic representations, um, and kind of different levels of detail to like to these representations, but it's not actually about the past. The the, the whole entire role of these um, these models is to predict the future. Like the, the brain is a Bayesian scientist making predictions about the future and updating these models on the basis mm. of. How, how, how well these predictions work out. Yeah. So from that perspective, you get this fundamental shift, conceptual shift in how you think about what memories actually are, and they become not about the past, but literally about... Unless you genuinely enjoy reminiscing and shit. <laughs> well, they're still formed from the past. They're just well, used, yeah, yeah. used to inform our models yeah, yeah, of the future. Yeah. But like, yeah. but in terms of the role of memory, like what are memories yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, uh, you know, they, like you said, they, they link into those schemas that we have about how things relate to each other and then they let us remember the future basically yeah, exactly. they let yeah. us imagine model, the know. future yeah. and, and simulate that and say oh okay God, if it's a really good name for a movie yeah remember if, the future yeah. <laughs> if i did okay, this this is what would happen <laughs> yes yes i robot is another one i like mm. actually uh it's <laughs> that it's, it's, yeah yeah, yeah, it's, that, yeah. it's that moment of, of yeah. consciousness um that, <clears throat> That you know, yeah, that an artificial intelligence uh, that it happens. The same thing in humans that you can mm-hmm. see, um, you know, actually in the second series. It's not too much of a spoiler to say it happens on a more widespread scale. <laughs> right. So it's not just that there are some of these synthetic humans that are conscious. Mm-hmm. It's that there are some synthetic humans that become conscious, mm-hmm. and the, the way that they depict that process is really interesting. Actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. that the suddenly the thing can. It, it cannot just only report on its internal state, it feels its internal state. So, so there's right. an extra level of abstraction. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. not only thinking and perceiving and sensing, it's thinking about thinking mm-hmm. and thinking yeah. about how it's feeling. There's this like, amazing reporting. awakening yeah. where there's yeah, this secondary yeah. recursive kind of loop yeah. that, that, that now you have, a, 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 you have to, you know, as Dave was saying, we infer what's out in the world, so we model the world. Mm. At some point, to do that, you have to model your own existence. Mm. Actually, yeah, attention to material. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, what do you make of the idea that in a lot of depictions of AI and artificial intelligence and machine intelligence, it inevitably goes towards catastrophic kind of consequences for humans? You know, it, yeah. I do like depictions where it's not necessarily it gives the positive and the negative, yeah. or it doesn't. Yeah, it is a bizarre sort of thing. 
but it maybe comes from some of the sort of initial things that they're there. Well, clearly there's a there's a whole you know mythology about a dystopian thing of yeah, you, you know, Prometheus to Frankenstein. Yeah, people want yeah, exactly. That so kind of you know, you've been aware that you've been playing start falling, so. yeah, but <laughs> you've been playing God and bad things. Yeah, yeah. that's a general theme. Right? Yeah. But um, but also I think there's a there's a view that they in many of these things they create the artificial intelligence to solve a problem, mm. and its ultimate solution is you know what actually humans are the problem. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. if yeah. we just don't do that, <laughs> then we should be all right. But then that, don't, don't that ask frames to solve everything. that frames um, current AI research where you can't even finish a story about something to do with AI and people go Skynet mm. like it, yes. it's now for it, everything's yeah. framing like everything you don't want it to tell it to do something like minimize human suffering because it can minimize human <laughs> suffering <laughs> by minimizing humans very quickly and it's a perfectly yeah. logical solution to, yeah. That, yeah. to that problem but you do have some very high profile people starting to get a little bit you know well, Elon, Elon Musk donated a yeah. million dollars to the um, Nick Bostrom's Institute and I think it's the Institute for the Future and Nick Bostrom recently wrote a book called Super Intelligence I don't know if you've read it but basically says that Super Intelligence is potentially like a sentient AI is potentially an existential threat an imminent based on some current rates of progress an imminent existential threat to humans uh, and he he thinks we should we start with research fundamental research uh, into how we might control it. Mm. Um, like well, we should be doing that now. At least convince um, Stephen Hawking. Um, yeah. Yes, yeah. I saw yeah. that. Yeah. 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 Uh, that worries me. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. It just it seems like it, people are stirring up hysteria. And yeah. like, I don't see any evidence. For it. I mean, yeah. we've got Deep Mind playing Go, right? But yeah. it can't. It can't do anything else. You know, it can't yeah. recognize a face. Yeah, I, I uh, so, so there's, yeah. you know, the, the, yeah. the, 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 a tremendous amount yeah. of training that was required yeah. to get it to that to I that think point. More, so. more of a danger from uh, narrow AI, like uh, applications. Like, just, just have to look at the. Uh, you mean in the terms fast, of like surveillance and all that well, kind of the, stuff. The fast trading algorithms, where you see these massive um, collapses. Oh yeah, yeah. Actually, that shares. That I could see as a genuine dystopian thing. It has already happened. Yeah, yeah. You know, not quite collapse of civilization level, but losses of billions and billions. Yeah. And you know, runs on currency yeah. and all sorts of stuff. So yeah, if we hand over our financial trading system completely to computers, we may be screwed. Yeah. Like regular tech already poses threats in terms of big corporations having most of our data. Like, um, you see where loads of people are trying to resell the new Google phone, their latest smartphone, and they start shutting down and suspending the accounts of people who are doing it. But like, that's everything. They they won't open these accounts back up. So people who've just decided to sell on their phone for a few bucks have now been shut out of their entire digital life. Like it's like having your house burnt down but everything inside of all your well, documents. Well it is a problem that so there's a monopoly on, your, yeah. on the, the, the No that's what I said. Regu- no I know that's what I'm saying but like, reg- like you don't have to go to AI I'm talking about yeah. regular tech yeah, we're yeah, using yeah. today that, po- that poses a major problem that we're giving everything to one company. I think that's more of a threat. Well, there's, there's, there's probably a, like a, a plausible legal argument there. Uh, yeah. That could be like legal, legal remedies for if, if, if that does That's happen. just emerging now, so I think maybe mm. there'll be something about it, and hopefully something will be done to resolve it. Yeah, I'd, be, I'd be destroyed if my Gmail account was yeah. shut down. Because all my email like, feeds into it. Yeah, so, absolutely. Like, literally tens of thousands of emails. Like, it's just crazy. Mm. So yeah, text bad at the end. <laughs> no, that wasn't that wasn't the conclusion. Uh, guys, thank you so much for the round table chat. That was really good. Might get you back thank for you. AI. Thank you very thank much. You. Thank you. Thanks, mate. Thanks, everyone. Yay.